One thing that's left off the slide I want to just stick in here is, you know, people like you come and visit me. People come over and do short-term missions. And uh, basically, I've got a whole group of Mennonites coming up from, are they Pennsylvania, Kentucky? My Pennsylvania Mennonites are coming over to help show us how to do a little better job building houses. We're, we're building houses for widows. Almost 365 days a year, I'm building a house for witness. Okay, that building you saw and some other houses that I had. I uh, gave you a very abbreviated tour of my ministry there. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, we actually built houses, and, and the mortar work was so bad on the houses I showed them, they said, you guys need help. And I said, yes, we do. And, you know, nobody's a better builder than some of our Mennonite brothers and sisters as far as that goes. And these guys all are contractors, roofing contractors, but they assure me they are also professional masons. So I'm bringing a bunch of guys over next year in the summer and I'm also bringing a medical team. So if somebody here, you can talk to your pastor, and if there's any of you that want to come, there is a limited amount of people that can come. But if somebody wanted to come, even with our medical team, we need people to gather information and record keeping. We need people to, uh, uh, to help us doing simple things, getting people ready. Just triage. I mean, we're going to have dentists. We're going to have heart doctors. We're going to have pediatricians. Just gathering the information of what the need is and pointing them out. And then we're also praying for people to be healed as well, too. So there's all kinds of opportunities for non-doctors to, to be there and to help, okay? And also opportunities to share your faith and get to see what we do in the ministry. So there's building opportunities next year, there's assisting doctors next year, and there's always an opportunity just to come and share and really watch what we're doing and see what it looks like to send disciples out every day doing the Luke 10 model. You're welcome just to come and observe. I insist that when people come, since I live next door to a national park and also the most economical national park in all of Tanzania, to go to. I insist that we take you on safari while we're there. We have every animal there is in Africa uh, of note except for lions. The lions are too far from me. They're like two hours away and we don't go all the way around so you can see a lion. If you want to see one though, I can hook you up. It's no big deal. But uh, it's very easy for me to put you arm's reach between uh, giraffes and monkeys and wildebeest and Hip, you don't want to be that close to hippos. But, you know, other animals and everything, they're very near. We had hippos come in our village this year. We have uh, giraffes. Um, up until one generation ago, giraffes actually grazed on the farm that I live on. Elephants come out during the dry season, which is right now while I'm here in America, and are eating our corn. They'll devastate an acre of, of corn in a night. They're, they're a terrible nuisance, and they're deadly. In our area, most deaths by animals are caused by elephants. They're, they're very dangerous. They're nocturnal. They come into our area, and uh, we got drunk guys who get out at night and say, I'm going to run this elephant out of my corn. And you're really not. You're not going to run them out of the corn. They're going to kill you if you go out there, particularly the males. So anyway, we have elephants walking around at nighttime. We don't go outside. If we do, we run to the show and we run back real quick. I actually keep a bucket in my room. I have no intention to go into my show at night. Even though I have a night watchman with a bright spotlight, I just decided that I'm not going out there at night, particularly in the dry season. No, regular season, I don't care, but during the dry season, because people will tell you last night the elephants were at your next door neighbors. I'm like, note to Glenn, not going outside tonight after dark. But I go to bed about 7.30 anyway. All right, any other questions? Yes, sir. How many what? How many healings? healings have I seen? You know, go ahead. 
Uh, I would say the, the wildest healing I have seen would be somebody I prayed for that uh, absolutely nothing happened while I was there, and then uh, and they were they were they were literally couldn't walk, and literally the next day they showed up not only walking but like dancing on the shamba. You know, they come up and go, "Look at my legs! I can't believe it!" And I said. Well, we prayed for you. When did you get in? And he says, well, as soon as I left, I was on crutches, and the further I went, all of a sudden I didn't need the right one, and then I didn't need the left one, and then I started going, what's going on here? And he said, no, I kind of danced home, and so I thought I'd come back to church today and praise the Lord. It kind of reminded me of the lepers. You know, Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they obeyed Jesus and walked away, one of them goes, I'm healed. And he turned around and came back. So that, that was the most miraculous one because this guy just, just left and come back like that. I also had one instance where we had a lady that was paralyzed, and I was with a Pentecostal preacher, and he was a real unique guy when he prayed, you know. But anyway, we went, and we were in a little Muslim village, and we had nobody wanted to hear about Jesus. And this lady come up and taps on my shoulder, and she says, uh, I heard that when Christians pray, that God hears. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, my daughter-in-law's paralyzed. Would you come pray for her? And I said, I sure would. And so I'm with this guy. And I'm brand new in country. I'm just the new kid on the block. You know, I'm meekly falling away, this big man of God, this mighty Pentecostal preacher. And so we go up and we go in the house. And he throws the net back. And, and he tells the lady there. And he talks to her and finds out she's been laying there for eight days. She hadn't drank water, eaten water, drank water, eaten bread for days. And he's looking down at her, and, and, he's, and, and this is totally Muslim village. I mean, there's no Christians in the area. And he says, if you'll believe, you can receive healing. And I'm sitting there going, she's Muslim, dude. Well, what is it? You're not even telling her what to believe. I mean, I'm just seeing all kinds of problems theologically with this guy. And he says, if you'll believe Jesus can heal you, you can get up and walk out of here. And I'm going, we didn't even told her who Jesus is. I mean, I mean, they call him Esau. And, you know, I got all these theological barriers just going off in my brain about why this is just going to be a disaster, you know. And so, and so he sits there and he says, do you want to walk? And she, she kind of nods her head like this and everything. And he goes, okay, if you believe... Let it be done to you according to your faith. And then, man, he starts praying for her. And I mean, he's yelling and carrying on. And I'm praying for her. And I'm sitting there and we're praying and praying. We pray about 10 minutes. I look over to the right and every Muslim in the village, man, is packed around the door. It's just like, you know, five people thick. And they're like climbing all over each other. And these crazy Christians are yelling and screaming. And we're coming against Satan. And we're commanding her to be healed and all this stuff. And we get through, and, that, and, I, and the only way I can describe what happened next is, is you, you ever remember when Peter and John were praying for this guy that was lame, and they reached down, and the Bible says they got him, and they pulled him up. Now, that's a risky thing to do. I mean, that's a step of faith. Well, I'm sitting there, and I get through, and Miserae, which is the, the guy's name, who was also a former Muslim, by the way, Miserae turns around and says, grab her, let's pull her up, and I'm like, all righty then. And so we reach down and we grab her and we jerk her up and she comes up there and she lands on her feet and she stands there. And I go. <laughs> and we turn around towards the door and we said, told uh, Miserae told the lady that was there that was a mother-in-law and said, get her some water and something to eat. And we walked her out the back door and all the Muslims spread the way. And they'd all told us, no, 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 we don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't want to hear about Jesus. And when we walked out that side, they all said, wait here. We're going home to get a chair. 
And they all went home and they all come back with a stool or something and they all sit down and they go, now we're ready to hear about Jesus. And we planted a house church right there in that village. And that was like the first time that we ever prayed for anybody. Uh, you know, this guy was a, uh, he was the great man of God leader there. I was just tagging along the rookie uh, missionary in Africa, you know, I, I don't, I didn't speak hardly any Swahili at the time. And, you know, I was just kind of along for the ride, but we saw this paralyzed lady get up and walk out in the, and, and several people in the village, uh, became Christians and we planted a house church there. So praise the Lord. That was one of the most memorable ones I ever saw. Somebody, you were going to ask something. Every day about an hour. An hour. Mm -hmm. I just run slow. Today I didn't run slow. I didn't run yesterday, so I ran like really fast today. I expect to sleep really good tonight. That's very big. Yeah. Fast, slow. What do you take? Uh, I am so slow. I run like a 12-minute mile pace on my easy days. And when I race, I run around seven and a half minutes a mile when I race a 5K. But I don't run more than 5K. Today I, I ran, you know, around... Did my speed workout probably around seven minutes a little faster, just a little half-mile deals. So I pushed it. In fact, I'm feeling a little bit in my lower back. I love to run. I, now I ran cross-country in school, and, you know, that was kind of my thing. I've run marathons and, and all that stuff. I swam in school and all that junk, too. So I've always been a, kind of an active guy. My dad and brother were actually high school hero-type guys. And so what I've learned about high school hero guys is when they graduate and they're not the superstar anymore, they all quit working out and they get, you know, get real big. And I was never that good, so I had to love, like, football and track just for the joy of the sport. And so what happened is, is, you know, I graduated 17, they graduated 18, they never did anything the rest of their life, and they're in horrible health. And I've basically stayed in shape the whole time, and it's worked for me. And so I feel like my dad, mental acuity at 86 years old, he's as sharp as a tack. He reads two novels a week. Uh, he would still be playing golf, except all of his friends are dead now. And, and, and I'm a, such a terrible golfer, he doesn't even want to play with me. It's pretty bad when you won't even play with your son because your 86-year-old dad says you're too bad. But anyway, that's pretty bad. I, I, by the way, y'all's uh, overseer said he played golf, and I believe him. He pulled his billfold out to give me his card, and golf tees went all over the place. So there's somebody you guys can play golf with. But uh, anyway, it served me well, and I believe that if I'll take care of myself physically, be a good steward, if Dad can be as sharp as he is at 86 years old, I may have 20 more years of ministry. I mean, if he can do it, he can be that sharp. If I can stay in shape, maybe at 86 years old, I'm still over in Africa doing what I do. So I hope that's true. And so that's my goal. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, it, it took me longer than most people because I kept going into Kenya. And see, when I was in Kenya, uh, I couldn't really learn all those languages because we were speaking uh, Urdu, Amharic, Arabic, Somali, Etrian, and Sudanese, and Swahili, and English. So there were seven languages up there, so which one are you going to learn? So it really impeded me. I'm going to tell you that from what I've noticed, at my age, I'm a very average guy, and I'm obviously not a spring chicken, but at my age, had I stayed in Tanzania, I believe I would have been fluent by the time I was three years without a great amount of effort. I actually went to a formal school for 90 days when I first got there, and then I studied faithfully for a long time, and then I just kind of made a decision that I was just going to stop speaking English. 
And so at that point, I began uh, on the farm itself, I was just going to speak Swahili. So it forced me vocabulary wise to just just sit there and struggle and try to remember the word. And, and then you would do it and then it wouldn't quite be right. And everybody'd start laughing. You'd go, and then finally I have to go, what's the word for a, for a hoe? Oh, it's Jimbe. Yeah, Jimbe. And I'm saying jumbo or something, you know, and they're just all dying laughing or worse. Can I tell you the most embarrassing thing I ever did in Africa? I'm sharing with a bunch of Muslims. We're doing the eyeglass thing. And uh, so they're, they're waiting to go get their eye exam and get their eyeglasses. Where are the kids? All right, I'm going to have to be cryptic. So they're all doing their, uh, uh, there to get their eyeglasses. And we just gave this gospel presentation where we do this. This guy paints this art picture and it starts with a cross and he does another thing. And, you know, basically we're doing the gospel. It's, it's a Baptist thing. You would, you'd have to be there and be trained to do it. But anyway, and so all these people prayed to receive the Lord. And so out of about 25 people in this little group I was sharing with, like 11 or 12 uh, of Muslim men and women had decided they wanted to follow Jesus. And so, you know, it's kind of a more of a sinner's prayer based thing and everything. But, you know, it's a big deal for a Muslim to publicly say, I want to follow Jesus. Trust me, they were paying a price. Now, in the West, it doesn't mean much to pray the sinner's prayer. But when you're standing in a Muslim community and you say you want to believe Jesus, praying the sinner's prayer is really bad. It's really dangerous. So I, I have a lot of respect for them doing that, by the way. So I'm not discounting what they did. I'm just saying that's the kind of gospel I was preaching, okay? So anyway, so when we got through, I decided to try out my Swahili. So my, my Swahili guy, my translator was there, and I'd been teaching in, uh, uh, in English, and he had been translating. And I decided to count how many people had come to Jesus, and I'd learned to count in Swahili, and this was my chance to show it. So, you know, it was Mojam, Bili, and Tatu, and Nane, Tano, and I'm just counting away. And I got to the end, and I announced, now, the word for like 12 would be Kumi, Ne, Mbili. Instead of saying Kumi, I said Kuma. And that happens to be the female reproductive organ. So I announced to everyone in the group that today we had 12 female reproductive organs come to Jesus. Well, when I said that, the women lifted their feet off. They were sitting on a bench, and they all fell over backwards, and their feet went straight up in the air. And the Muslim men fell over. They started laughing so hard, their kofia came off their head. My translator turned around and sprinted off into the field. And I turned around to my buddy and said, what did I say? He said, I don't know, man, but you just messed up. And I didn't know what I said. And so I'm, I, I, I'm like, what did I do? What did I do? And everybody's just howling. And I have no idea what I said. Kumi and Kuma are not the same thing. So anyway, I finally tracked my translator down, and he won't even tell me what I said. And I practically have to threaten him. And he finally says, man, you basically told him that there's like uh, – Female reproductive organs and two is how many got saved there that day. And you said that to Muslim men. And I said, oh, I'm embarrassed. He said, you're embarrassed. He said, I, I got to go hide. He said, and I said, I wonder why you wouldn't translate anything for me anymore. But he literally ran off and hid from me for about an hour or so. Anyway, that was life's most embarrassing moment in Tanzania. 
but I'm famous for that. I tell people all the time, I've made, you can never make as many mistakes as I've made trying to be a missionary. Nobody's made more mistakes than me. I can tell you the wrong way to do almost anything. That seems to be the way I learn. I don't know why. Other people seem to get things better than me, but I'm always trying. I'm always swinging at the ball, but, you know, the guy that's always swinging strikes out more than anybody else, and I've never seen a pitch I didn't like. You know, it's just that's the way I am. I try everything, and, I, and I've done the best that I can, but I'm telling you, if you followed me around, there'd be so many moments you'd go, what in the world did he just do? I promise you. I must have a hundred of those. But I've just decided to live with it. That's who I am. Do you know that God factored in all my screw-ups, and he can still accomplish his will and purposes? And I want you to know that, too. You can't mess up what God can't fix. If you'll just untie your boat from the dock and push off ashore, I want to tell you something. God, even God can't steer a boat that's not moving. Have you ever gotten in a boat and turned the wheel? You can take the tiller and do this, and you can do that. It don't go anywhere. You can get the wheel. I used to have a cabin cruiser. You could sit on that cabin cruiser, and you could turn left, and you could turn right. And as long as you were sitting at the dock, all you did was gently rock the boat. If you don't untie and begin to move out, God can't use you, and God can't move you because you can't steer a boat that's not moving. You can't ride a horse that's not moving. You can't steer him. God can't steer it. It's not going to happen. Most of us, we need to push out in faith, raise our sails, and say, God, I'm going somewhere. Lead me. But instead, we're sitting at the dock going, Lord, tell me what you want to do. I feel like God's going, you're in a boat. It's made for the ocean. Untie the rope. Push it off. Hoist the sail. I'll send the wind. I'll tell you which way to go. But instead, we're sitting in the boat. Lord, tell me what to do. Lord, tell me what to do. And he's like, why does this guy think I put him in the boat? What's this deal? Oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. Sail the boat. Do what you know. And let God lead you. Any other questions? They're supposed to. Um, we really don't raise enough revenue to even support our own, own public schools. So, unfortunately, even public school kids have to, their parents, what they do is we say, you got to, school's free, but you got to pay for the desk. Now, the desk's been there for 22 years, but you got to pay for the desk. It's a reasonable price, but you got to pay for the desk. And you got to pay for the janitor. And you got to pay for the janitor to have a bucket to mop in. Now, there's 300 kids in the school, and they're charging everybody 5,000 shillings for a bucket, and obviously he only needs one or two. But every kid's got to buy a bucket. So we have this kind of funny way of doing things but yeah it costs something but it's not much you know for to send your kid to elementary school it's like 50 bucks a year but you know that's a month's wage over there so it's, it's not nothing either once you get in high school you actually got to send food you're supposed to spend like 50 kilos of uh, beans and 50 kilos of maize or or corn and uh and then there's other things you've got to do there to kind of help and everything but it's not free and unfortunately because our teachers are paid so poorly that in our country the absentee rate for teachers is 27%. So we, uh, we, we really have a very low level of education. Uh, anybody that the first thing you do if you get any money in Tanzania is you send your kids to a private school. I mean, that's just the way it is. They're just really bad. But there's a lot of good missionaries over there trying to change that and teach and all that kind of stuff. So 
we have high hopes. But we, uh, all our Pakistani friends, we used to homeschool, and uh, the previous administration outlawed, outlawed homeschool for missionaries, and so we actually had to start sending them to a private school. And, of course, uh, we had to go to one that, you know, we don't have any teach Urdu, Hamedic, and, um, and, and Arabic or Farsi. So that means we had to find them that taught in, in English as well as Swahili for the little kids because they could speak some English. And so that was an expensive school. I mean, it cost us about $1,200 a child. And just to give you an idea, that's 12 months wage over there easy for a good-paying job. So that's a lot of money in Africa. Only rich people can afford to spend 1200 a year in Africa to go. Now, there's elite schools, you know, people from India that are millionaires and, and, you know, real rich people. And there's British people that come. I mean, there's schools within 10 miles of me that want to know if you want to board your polo pony. These rich Brits that come down and they own, and Europeans and they own massive estates and they own safari companies and they fly into the Nairobi airport, get in their personal helicopter and come and land on their personal land, you know, and get out and ride their polo ponies. I mean, there's rich people all over the world, but it's just, you know, it's just not part of our culture or anything. Yes, ma'am. You just wanted to know if I did, that was the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. 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 It, hey, if you want to listen to that, put beautifully to music. Uh, uh, Google Baba Yetu. Baba Yetu. That means our father. Oh, Mark's website. Yeah, it's Kingdom Driven Ministries. You can Google that uh, and you'll see all of Mark and his information. I may still be on the website as well. I had to move off. And the reason was, is I had so many when I was working radical Islam, we had so many pings on the website from people like Yemen and Iran and and um, uh, Saudi countries and, and all these places that I was kind of like a ghost, you know. I rode a motorcycle and I was by myself and I lived like in the slums. I was really kind of a elusive guy to find. I had house churches in the slums and over in the radical Islamic area and and I mean, I was kind of like a ghost, you know, so I, nobody could find me and they were looking for us, but they couldn't find me. And I was working with two imams that they were definitely trying to kill. And so we had planted like nine or 10 house churches in the slums and nine over in the radical Islamic area. We literally had house churches next to the largest mosque in Nairobi. I mean, there were radicals in that mosque and we're next door singing. You can't sing loud until you whispered. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the way we worship. We, very quietly. And we, no one cared Bibles. We had apps on our phones with passwords to open them, you know. So you just learn how to do all this stuff. But anyway, so Mark asked me, he told me, he said, they can't find you, brother, but me and my eight kids are on the map. And, uh, and I got enough persecution from Muslims because he was leading so many to the Lord. He asked me to actually move so that I actually left my official association with him, even though he was still pastoring and leading me and joined up with some guys at Global Church Planning Partners here in America.